Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 174. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, my pleasure to be joined by Nick Perler. Nick, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I appreciate you guys having us. I am so glad to have you. So you came onto my radar recently when a bunch of people in our community suggested I should reach out, particularly because of the way that you structure and manage your wrestling curriculum. But rather than me explaining it, probably better if you do. So why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself and introduce your work? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm Nick Perler, and uh, I started wrestling when I was 11. I'm 52 now. I wrestled at Oklahoma State back in the 90s for John Smith, and uh, somewhat successful wrestler, not as much as I would have liked to have been, but somewhat satisfied, won a three state titles in high school and junior nationals twice and was All-American at Oklahoma State. Quit wrestling after college to enter grad school and get married. Back then, you really couldn't compete in wrestling outside of college unless you just wanted to live like a much more poorer than a college kid does. My brother, who is a twin of mine, he stuck with wrestling. He actually was an NCAA champ, and he went on to uh, be make the world team twice and was top 10 in the world. So we both have a extensive wrestling background. Got into teaching and coaching for four years. Didn't like it for various reasons. Decided I was going to coach on my own and start my own wrestling academy, which there was nothing of the kind back in the day. I think I'm the first one. And something I talked about since college and my then girlfriend, now wife, was like, why don't you just do what you've talked about doing for years? I think you can make it work. So anyway, started my wrestling academy, we call it. Uh, all of our athletes train with their own teams. They come to us for extra training, you could say. And I quickly realized if my athletes don't win, I don't have a job. I'm I don't I'm not like a teacher, right? Or like a college coach who has a five-year contract. So I decided to get very organized and I started to say, how can I make the sport a little bit more simplified and mostly kind of like maybe have some predictability and outcomes, right? And I know that if you buy a, a set of plans to build a deck from Home Depot, you don't have to be an expert carpenter. If you follow the steps, you can probably do a pretty good job of building a deck. So I decided to kind of organize wrestling in such a fashion that I could make it more of an assembly line. Like, hey, you, you go through these steps, you're going to come out a finished product, right? From a technique standpoint. So what we've done is I have over the years, my whole philosophy comes 
around building wrestling from a technique standpoint around the very common positions. There are positions that are common to almost every wrestling match, whether you're six years old or 26. And then as you get older and more advanced and you start becoming more of a national level wrestler, there are other positions that are very common too. Not that the preliminary positions aren't still common, right? I mean, there's common positions in jujitsu, obviously. And so there's sort of like a second tier. A lot of those common positions are mostly like, let's just say, counters to counters, right? So I have a front headlock. These are the best four ways we have found to score. And there's the two best ways to get out. Here's the two best counters to those counters. That's pretty much as far as we go with our program. So from a technique standpoint, I ended up with the common positions philosophy and the best two to three ways to score from those common positions. And that second tier of top common positions, breaking that down a little bit further and saying, here's our basics program. You could probably say beginners for three years of wrestling experience or less. Then we have phase one, phase two, phase three. So now I have a four-part wrestling program. We put this out on DVD in 2005. Some very uh, sort of renowned wrestlers nowadays have used our system growing up. Most notably, probably Stefan Mishik. He's he's an Olympian for Serbia and uh, multiple-time All-American for Michigan. Their testimonials are on my website at perlerwrestling.com. Colton Schultz, he won some world titles in high school. He wrestles at Arizona State. They bought my series. Their dad pulled them out of school, homeschooled them, and, and they used it. Nick Lee, Penn State, NCAA champ, he used our system a lot. His dad's still a good friend of mine. So there's been a handful up-and-comer, Noah Certain, who's setting the world on fire right now in wrestling. But thousands of athletes have used our system over the years. But everything comes down to the common positions, the best handful of ways of scoring, the second tier common positions, prioritizing those into experience levels. So it sounds completely complex, but it really is so user-friendly. And we end up with right around 275 wrestling techniques out of, you know, an estimated many thousands, maybe five, 6,000 wrestling techniques. We've boiled it down and that's what we have. And I've built a camp business career around it, an academy career, our private team camps where we travel around teaching our system, our online wrestling course. It used to be on DVD format. Obviously, now it's streaming online. So everything we've built is around just simplifying wrestling so that people can have the success because I found there's no shortage of people with the desire and a willingness to work. They just don't know, know where to start. And so we sort of have like the blueprint, you could say. That's awesome. And something that I think is probably especially relevant to our listeners, of course, with jujitsu, wrestling is a huge part of jujitsu. But the reality is that most people who train jujitsu by their own admission will probably tell you their wrestling is a bit underdeveloped uh, simply because due to the way that the common rule sets are structured, although wrestling is important, there are other paths to to score points and to win. So a lot of people will just kind of choose those paths instead. Now, a common issue that we also have in jujitsu that I've talked about at Length is just general problems with the methodologies for teaching, how we organize and arrange a curriculum. And that's what I'd love to dig into here with you, because you just provided an awesome explanation of how you guys have done that. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about this. There's thousands of techniques available if you're a wrestler. You've narrowed it down to a much, much smaller focus there that you 
particularly try to ingrain into your students. Walk me through that thought process. How did you get there? How did you decide which techniques would get the focus and which ones wouldn't? Just, I'd love to know your mindset and your thought process for how you build a curriculum like that. Okay, yeah. Well, a lot of it's my personality, right? So I'm not well-rounded. I'm known for being completely ADHD on steroids, but, you know, I have this ability to hyper-focus. I obsess and hyper-focus, and I just completely spent hours. I'd wake up in the middle of the night for two hours, and, and my mind would be working, and I would have, it took me about three years to kind of develop a plan because this system is, is more advanced than what I started with because I was generally starting with youth wrestlers with two to three years of experience. And then we, as I did this longer and got bigger and more well-known, there was no internet back then, no social media. The advertising, there's no digital advertising. We were shipping out flyers everywhere. It was completely a word-of-mouth building process back then. So I, I, I now use our complete whole system because we have different levels in our academy, right, to extremely advanced all the way down to beginner. But back then, I just wanted to do this because I wanted to put it in kind of video format, you could say. Bit. So I think a lot of it is just my personality and I completely immerse myself in this and I would watch all the NCA matches. And what's interesting is this, you know, I know a little bit about football, but I guarantee you, I don't see the same Super Bowl that the college football coach will see, or certainly an NFL, or even probably you might see if you're a big football fan. You see a different game than I see because I'm very, I know very little about football, right? So I noticed when I was watching all these high-level wrestling matches on YouTube and so forth, or on TV and so forth, I would notice, oh, what looked like a scramble, it really wasn't, right? And so I'm like, oh, I forgot I even knew that. Because I had to get really down in the gutter when I started up my academy. A lot of what I knew about wrestling, I really didn't get to utilize and teach. And not that I forgot it, I just forgot that I knew it. So what I did when I was immersing myself in this process of, of like studying all these rest, I had a manila envelope with like sticky notes in it and everything. And then after about a year and a half, I dumped that out. And I had continually had just sort of running, you know, Word document going, but then I just piecemealed everything together, you know, like that. And that's kind of what I, where I came up kind of with the complete system there. So I started with the structure of common positions. Okay, so let me say this. When you watch uh, high-level wrestling, the matches look pretty much the same. That's by design because what you have to do in wrestling, and I'm sure you do it in jiu-jitsu also, obviously, there are positions that you should avoid. So I learned this at Oklahoma State, and this will be probably helpful for your viewers uh, and your listeners. So my coach, Bruce Burnett, who went on to coach Team USA and, and rebuild Team USA to what it is today, he's like, Nick, you're, you wrestle from anywhere. And I'm like, I want to wrestle from anywhere because I want to be dangerous because that was like me and my brother's thing, right? We were always technique geeks, right? Everyone hated drilling, but we loved it. So I've always loved the technical side of sport and, and specifically wrestling. And he's like, yeah, but you're, you don't want to wrestle chest to chest over under because it's a 50-50 position. It's dangerous to be and I don't care how good you are. And he's like, your problem is if someone overhooks you, you'll wrestle from an underhook. If they underhook you, you'll wrestle from an overhook. If they want to wrestle from space, you'll do it. If they want to wrestle in tight, you'll do that too. And I was like, that's good though because I feel like I can score there. And he's like, Nick, you're going to get an Iranian who wrestles for a living with his underhook. 
You will not beat him. Your wrestling needs to get smaller and you need to specialize a little bit. You don't need to be a one-move wrestler, and I'm not saying that, but you need to narrow down your approach. You wrestle from everywhere and it's not good. So when I'm organizing all these sticky notes and things, in my already current basics, phase one, phase two, phase three, prioritize, common position, these techniques are vital, and I start kind of filling in those gaps a little bit, I kept that in mind as well. So it's a complete education process, you know, what we go through with our athletes and educate them that your wrestling should get a little bit smaller, right? You don't want to wrestle chest to chest in folk style or freestyle wrestling because it's likely just as easy to score on you as it is for you to score there. So we avoid that. So that way there's some predictability in wrestling. And that's the reason when you watch wrestling on TV, and I'm sure jujitsu also, with the exception of the few freaks and the outliers, the matches look pretty much the same. And that's the reason a minute ago I said that is by design. So that that's sort of how I filled in the blanks. I see. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, jujitsu is kind of a weird sport because since it is so new and since there's a lot of variables that you don't see in a sport like wrestling, there's probably more diversity than you would expect. Particularly one of the weird things about jujitsu is with the presence of the kimono, you can do all sorts of crazy things with that, right? You can not just grab people, but you can actually tie them up with their own pajamas. Yeah, (laughs) And that opens up a whole different new type of modern competition game plan that people can play. But all the same like you talked about from a strategy standpoint what a lot of people advocate for and this includes this podcast is to try to have an area that you're especially good at and to be able to try to funnel your opponent into that area because like you said I mean unless you are just an absolute freak you're simply not going to be able to get good at everything there are so many techniques and there's so many variables in a jiu-jitsu match that you're not going to be able to just be world-class at every single part of the sport and that's not to say you shouldn't learn everything or as much as possible, but you've got to have a focus and you have to have a conscious game plan where you try to steer people back into your focus. If you're a reactive fighter, like you talked about, where you kind of just let your opponent choose the position and choose what happens and you just play from there, there are people who are so athletic and so freaky that they can actually make a reactive game like that work. But for most people, I always suggest have a conscious game plan and know what kind of positions you want to get into and try to funnel your opponent into those as an alternative to just trying to memorize every single aspect of the sport, which is often a losing battle because there's only so many hours in the day. There's only so much brain power that we as human beings have. And so trying to memorize everything is not optimally efficient. And it also means that you run the risk of not being good at anything in particular either if you try to learn every little detail everywhere. Yeah, I agree. And so what we do with our academy kids and at our 28-day wrestling camp and our 56-day wrestling camp, what we do is we go through this exercise, right, where we write down our strengths and weaknesses. Too many people are constantly focused on their weaknesses. And parents do that, right? So they always say things like, well, I'm not fast. I had a great wrestler. He actually won kids nationals, like one of the real kids nationals, like the big ones. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? I thought you, I think you're fast. He's like, well, I'm not fast enough, you know, and, and it's always been my problem. And I'm like, then don't try to wrestle fast. You know, Dave Schultz wasn't a fast wrestler. Uh, he, they write movies about him. My teammate in college, Kendall Cross, he was Olympic champion and NCAA champ. He's, he jokes about being slow. So I think sometimes we obsess with our weaknesses. So what we do as an exercise is we say, 
write down on a piece of paper, and your jujitsu athlete should do this too. Write down your strengths and weaknesses. Okay, now you have a list. Now, write down the weaknesses that you cannot fix. So, I am five foot five on a tall day. I will never have leverage. Now, when I wrestled 118 in college, I had leverage. I was a tall wrestler, but when I went to 126, which was a godsend because I was killing myself literally to make that weight, I didn't no longer had the leverage. So you had to adjust a little bit. But for the most part, there are weaknesses that you cannot fix. If you're a five foot seven, 185 pound man competing in jiu-jitsu and you're extremely powerful, you're short and compact, but you'll never have reach or leverage. You cannot fix that. If you have very little fast twitch muscle fiber, you that will never change. Not that you can't get a little bit faster, but that will never change. If you don't have freakish flexibility and freakish gyro hips, we call it in wrestling, like a complete balance, like you have balance like a cat, you can do things to improve but you can't fix those. So now once we realize the weaknesses that we can't fix, now we can start to adjust our wrestling and say, what positions are good for me? We, we talked about avoiding certain positions just from a common sense standpoint, but there also might be some positions that I want to avoid or tweak how I, how I control from there. So if I was a very tall wrestler and I was collar tying and underhooking you, I would probably collar tie underhook differently. I would step my left foot in between your, your feet in the zone and I would probably elevate. But if I was a short, powerful collar tie underhook guy, I would keep my hairline on your collarbone and keep my trail leg back because I'm probably going to knee tackles and underhooks and throw bys and duck unders. So it's a very powerful when you fess up to the fact that you have weaknesses that you're born with and that you can't fix, it's kind of freeing because you're not fighting it all the time. So many athletes, they always feel like they're broken. Like this young man I was talking about uh, two years ago when he brought this to my attention. And I'm like, dude, you're never going to be blazing fast. So the kids always feels like he's going to struggle and it's an uphill climb. And now I'm like, just don't wrestle a really fast style of wrestling and don't worry about it, you know? So that's a powerful exercise that I think we should go to as, through as humans, maybe. I do it from a business standpoint. I have things I know I'm not good at that I don't like doing, and I just give up, and I just write a freaking check and pay someone else to do it, and I <laughs> spend time where I'm good, and I'll make that money up and I'll at least, at least break even if, or not come out ahead, but I quit worrying about it. I think we should just accept our weaknesses and wrestle with and around those. Now, obviously, if your weakness is, you know what, I'm 12 pounds overweight, I could lose a little bit of fat. Well, dude, you can fix that, right? That's not what we're talking about. I think that's something that can help all of us in a highly technical sports like jujitsu and wrestling. Interestingly, that's also great career and entrepreneurship advice. I've heard this repeatedly from other people, and it's something that I believe yes. myself too, which is that you have to avoid the trap of trying to fix every little weakness and every little imperfection about yourself, and rather focus all of your energy on being excellent at the things that you are excellent at. So rather than trying to patch your weaknesses, it's often better to try to double down on your strengths. Yes. I mean, if you're like an entrepreneur, right, and you're 
terrible at accounting. <laughs> Trying to learn accounting so that you can do that is not a good idea because there are tons of people out there who would be happy to do that and they're awesome at it. And if you're working on all of these little things you're not really good at, they're going to distract you from your passion and from being truly exceptional at the things that you are good at. So you kind of have to avoid that seductive trap of focusing on all of your weaknesses and trying to patch them up. And like you said, if a weakness is fixable, that's one thing. But if you're talking about just your attributes and the way you are, at some point, you have to focus on building up the things you're really good at rather than trying to shore up the things that maybe you're not good at. After all, if you are truly good at certain things, your strategy should be to try to steer your opponent to the places where you're good so they never even see the yes. things that you're not so good at. Well, well, that's exactly right. And this is some, a huge trap that I've been battling for a years, just trying to help I, I like coaching. I like helping people, right? So we put a lot of things on social media. It's very helpful to people, YouTube and everything. So uh, something that's very common in wrestling is they try to force a style, right? And back in the 90s, John Smith was the hot item. He's considered the best wrestler ever in America. He was, I was his, one of his main workout partners the last three years of his career. And then, because I, I gray-shirted after high school to get bigger, then red-shirted, then started four years. So I was on campus for six years. Then the last three years of my career, he was my coach. So back then, even John admits to this day that he tried to, when he first was a young coach at 27 as a Division One coach, he tried to force his athletes to wrestle like him. You know, and before he took over as the head coach, our older coach, Joe C, who actually just passed away about a year ago, awesome man. He recruited me. He won the NCAA title as a coach in Division Two and Division One. I. I think the only guy to ever do that. He was trying to push like, oh, John Smith figured out the magic style of wrestling. And they were really pushing us to wrestle that way. Well, at the same time, at the end of John's career, the, the Tom and Terry Brands, who are now the head coaches at Iowa, they're like pound for pound, freakishly a couple of the strongest human beings on planet Earth. They would just grab you. And I mean, they were just like physical wrestlers. And they were in Sports Illustrated years ago. And one of them said, I don't like drilling. I don't like technique, but I'll rip your arm off and beat you in the head with a bloody stump. Right. <laughs> so that was like, so at the same time, during the end of my career, we really had these two opposing styles of wrestling that were being pushed all over America. And to the, these days, the the so-called Tom and Terry Brands Iowa style is still being pushed. And I think it's a good thing if you're a power wrestler. And I think wrestling more like John Smith or something is powerful if you have those attributes. But I think what John Smith came to the conclusion was I had to learn to let people wrestle around their strengths and weaknesses. And this is very interesting because I know your fan base follows MMA too. So Randy Couture was my teammate. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was 24 as a freshman. Okay, because he was in the military, left the military for wrestling, and uh, was my teammate. So Randy, I remember like it was yesterday. So here I am. I was a kind of a little arrogant kid. I'll admit it. I'm like walking to the shower, and Randy, he is, I guess he's a sophomore in college. And Bruce Burnett and Joe C are making him do all these fancy footwork drills after practice because they were really pushing everybody to shoot from the outside, attack below the knee, circle, fake, kind of the John Smith type stuff, right? And I remember thinking, golly, I'm so glad I'm not a, an athlete like Randy, you know? I don't want to do all that 
bullshit and hop on those dots and all that crap. And I took a shower and he was doing this a lot. Well, I remember, I don't know, it might've been a month, two, three months later, he lost a dual meet and I was downstairs pull, cutting weight. I don't think I even watched the dual meet. I wasn't starting at the time. He comes down, he had lost, or maybe it was after the duel, we were all down there showering, getting ready for the post dual meet meeting before we left. It was a home duel. I remember him slamming his locker and punching his locker and saying, F these coaches. I'm done with this bullshit. I'm going to wrestle the way I wrestle. I'm tired of trying to wrestle like everybody else. I'm done. I mean, he might even said, I'm going to, like he was a Greco wrestler in the army, right? All, traveled all the world, wrestled Greco. He's like, I'm going to underhook and push them all and push people around the mat. He was an NCAA runner up twice at Oklahoma State. And I never, I was ranked number one. I was ranked as high as number two my freshman year. My junior year, I was ineligible also, ranked number one. My senior year, ranked number one. And I just didn't pull the deal. And I was seventh and was all American. But I still, I had some close success. And I remember sitting in the stands thinking, you know what? Randy's smart because he had the guts to say, this doesn't work for me. Where I think some of us were always just trying to, we're so desperate to be very good at wrestling that you almost listen to the, your superiors without like, saying, dude, is this actually going to work for me? And so I remember being very proud of Randy when he made the NCAA finals as a junior. And I was like, dude, he's an amazing athlete. He just, he, he was being forced to wrestle a style that didn't work for him. So anybody out there in wrestling or jujitsu or any other sport, if you're trying to force a style and a way of wrestling on any of your athletes, especially in combative sports like boxing, wrestling, and so forth, man, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know, you can name six or eight Olympic champs. You can probably list a lot of second, third degree black belts who you look up to and train with and, and, and study, and they all have a different approach and a style. And I think that any coaches who are trying to teach a specific style in wrestling are really doing a disservice because some people don't have these certain powerful attributes or the length or the quickness or the white muscle fiber or the red muscle fiber or the this or the that and or the ability to scramble or the flexibility we just gotta gotta stick within the core laws of what our of our sport and kind of let them be their own guide and using that that strength to weaknesses exercise that i had do with my athletes is very powerful. And as a coach, you can do that with them. And now you're not getting all antsy trying to force them to do something that doesn't work for them. And that kind of creates maybe uh, an, an ability for you as a coach to say, wait a second, you know, I've already evaluated this wrestler. So you're, you're not likely to give that bad advice, I think. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I have had the exact same experience you're describing here. <laughs> the, the only difference is I am not an elite level athlete. But even me, a mere hobbyist mortal, has had the exact same experience with my coach. In the jujitsu space, it's very common for coaches to not be what I would say, um, maybe empathy is not really the right word, but I, they're not really empathetic to their students in a lot of ways. They have trouble projecting their own mind into what it would be like to be these students and what they're their life experiences like. So you get a lot of coaches who will prescribe things 
to their students that either worked for them or they worked for other elite athletes that they follow. Mm -hmm. But just because you as the second degree black belt coach are able to do something doesn't mean that that's going to be a good fit for your students. And just because you're studying some elite level jujitsu folks out there, that doesn't mean you can just copy and paste their entire game plans into your own students and create a league of champions. It just doesn't work that way. Everyone is totally different. In jujitsu, there are a lot of submissions you can do where you basically try to choke someone's head and arm at the same time. Mm -hmm. The the most probably visual and known example is the triangle choke where you're, you're choking someone with your legs, but basically what you're doing is you're squeezing their head and arm together. And there's Mm -hmm. other variations of that too. Like you can do it with your arms. You can do arm triangles and such. And I was taught from day one that like, these are great techniques and everyone should use them. And I just, I kept trying to get these to work over and over again. And I just kept encountering a lot of limitations because I have shorter limbs. My legs especially are really, really thick and and strong. And I just have a hard time closing my legs and getting a triangle around someone's head and arm unless they're a lot smaller than me. But I'm not a big guy, so I'll be in there fighting these people who are way bigger than me, and I'll be trying to get like a triangle choke, and I just can't do it. And for a long time, I beat myself up over this because I thought, well, all of these famous black belts are telling me that this is a great technique, so if I can't do it right... Therefore, there must be something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. But what I realize now after 13 years of practicing these techniques is it's actually not me. I mean, the reality is we're all different. We all have different passions. We all have different game plans and strategies that resonate with us. And like you said, we all have different physical attributes. A move like a triangle choke It requires a lot of leverage, and that leverage comes from having long legs. And to some extent, if your legs are too short to the point where you simply cannot lock up a triangle, it's just not the move for you. That doesn't mean you're bad at jujitsu. It just means that there are myriad other techniques that would be better for you to study and focus on. So the end result in jujitsu is it is extremely rare to see a little person triangle a larger person. It almost never happens. I can see that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about jiu-jitsu is we do a lot of open weight tournaments in addition to uh, weight class-based tournaments. And in those open weight tournaments, you can be fighting someone who's 50 to 100 pounds bigger than you, right? And you will simply never see a little tiny person triangle a gigantic person at a high level. It just isn't going to happen because mechanically, it's just not a good fit for that body type. And I probably stunted the growth of my game a lot by listening to all of these instructors who insisted that this kind of stuff would be good for me. And I i mean, after all of these years of training it, I know these techniques inside and out. I, I can use them on certain smaller people, but they just aren't a staple of my game. And I kind of wish I had come to that conclusion a lot earlier in my journey because I could have focused my time better working on other things. Yeah. I instruct our, our, our athletes constantly. I'm like, don't be desperate. I was desperate, right? I wanted to be so good, so bad. I mean, I literally, I don't have a well-rounded life. I discussed that growing up. I just trained. I think I spent the night at a friend's house one time. Not that I didn't have friends at school, but I was a recluse, me and my brother. I mean, we were obsessed, right? But I definitely think one thing that's important to point out is the personality has a lot to do with it as well. So we all want to be very good, especially at a high level. I had an Olympic sports psychologist friend of mine years ago. He said, my most successful athletes are my least happy, Nick. 
And I was like, Bing, that that's kind of sounds like me, right? He's like, these people are miserable. So I think the people who are the most driven sometimes are the most desperate. And so I say, don't be too coachable. And people say, what the hell does that mean? I'm like, be coachable, but don't be desperate. And also understand who the coach is, right? And I just, I warn my athletes too. I'm like, your coaches are young. They don't know what they're doing. And my son, when he went to a very good wrestling high school where I live, we moved here for that school. And I talked to Kevin and Josh and I'm like, I would like you got two guys to coach my son. These other two coaches are young. Why don't you guys just coach them? You know, because these young guys, sometimes the coach is desperate too. So you have an athlete who is completely desperate and the coach who's desperate and the athlete will do anything. If the coach says, you need to stand on your head for five minutes before a match, they're like, oh, you think so? Will that help me win the, is that the secret? Or the coach will be frustrated at the lack of results of their athletes and they're like, okay, we're going to start doing this. Maybe they watch the Iowa State wrestling team and they did something and we're going to do this. And so sometimes we have coaches, we have very desperate coaches and athletes who just need to take a deep breath and calm down. And I tell my coaches, we have 13 coaches who work with me in like over 20 locations. And so we have, you know, kind of a big organization we built. And I tell them, I'm like, you don't say, Audrey, you need to do this or Jason, you should do that. Say, hey, you're here a lot. Do you think, I here's two options. I think if you spent this week trying to drill a couple hundred reps of this, I think this could be, what do you think? Let's hit a couple. Do you think this could be something that you can use from this position? Because what you're doing currently is, is stalemating you almost every time. Yeah, you know, I think so. Okay, I'm going to give you a third option. I really think you should drill this and pick one. You don't have to. But so I kind of like make suggestions to our athletes, even the very young ones. Because when you say you need to do this, that that's the issue. We That's a problem. And so then you end up with a frustrated, like you looked up to your second degree black belt coach and if he said you need to 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 use this techniques more you you were frustrated trying to do it and you thought something was wrong with you where if he instead of being this is how you do it or maybe he was desperate if you would just do this the problem would be solved dude it doesn't work that way mm-hmm. maybe if if we make suggestions to our athletes and we also know their strengths and weaknesses we might make better suggestions and and give them a couple of other options. That way they're evolving and growing rather than just saying, you need to do this. And if you don't, you're not going to win and something's broke. This is something we talk about actually quite a bit in jujitsu, which is that coaches often feel like they have to prescribe solutions to people. So they'll say, oh, just do this, just do this. They'll yes. make it sound so easy, but they're not really taking into account a few things. One thing being that everyone is different. And just because something works for the coach doesn't mean it's going to work for the student. But the other thing being that students are very impressionable. When a coach comes in and says, do this, if that's bad advice and the student takes it anyway, it can take years to unravel that advice. I mean, I know that in jujitsu, there were things that I was told to do at white belt and the instructor didn't provide a lot of nuance. They just came in and said, never do this. And it wasn't until I got to brown belt to the point where I was basically a coach myself that I realized, hold on a second. (laughs) 
this was not good advice. And I realized, okay, just because someone is walking around wearing a belt with a fancy collar on it, that doesn't mean they actually know everything. And even if they are individually very good at doing this particular thing themselves, that doesn't mean that it's a good fit for me. And it also doesn't mean that they're going to be good at teaching it to me. So you got to be careful to have that healthy relationship with your coach where, yeah, you want to be coachable, like you said, but you also want to be a critical thinker and understand that your coach can make mistakes and give bad advice too. Yeah, that's 100%. And also, I think that from a parent and coaching standpoint, so, you know, what we tell our athletes too, especially for like parents who are considering getting our online wrestling course, I'm like, you don't want to be at the mercy of your coach. Now, sure, if you live, well, I would like to think if you live near our organization, you're probably are in a good place, right? But there's a lot of great, I was a triple jump coach in Texas. I'm 5'5". We had number three team in the state in class six in Texas. We literally one day had three division one track coaches walking down the hallway together, recruiting our girls. And here I am coaching triple jump. And I'm like, so I was a good dude and I worked hard, but these girls were getting shortchanged by having me. Well, there are parents all over the nation who have a good dude who's a great guy who coaches their kids wrestling, but the guy never really wrestled before, right? So sometimes we, we have to realize we're at the mercy of our coach. We're at the mercy of his practice plan for us for the day. Well, guess what? A lot of times they don't have a practice plan, you know? And so if you want to kind of take the bull by the horns a little bit, you need to be able to do that. And that's one reason that I'm kind of passionate about our online course is because now you no longer have to be at the mercy. Even though the coach is a good guy and tries hard, the coach probably walks into the parent meeting and says, hey, I played football back in the 90s. I never really wrestled, but we're in a small town. The wrestling coach quit. I'm the guy. I'm going to do my best, you know? Something that the young coaches and parents need to understand also is the personality has a lot to do with how you wrestle. So the personality of, and we see this with dads fighting their sons a lot. They're like, oh, he was just more like me. I had a dad one time and he was like, if he was just, oh, he just, he's just like his mom. And I'm like, dude, you're a hard charging guy. So am I. I know I've burned a lot of bridges, right? Con- confrontational. I've, I, I've got some severe character flaws, right? My daughter's like me. We call ourselves fire breathers, right? Because we're both <laughs> fire breathers. Where my wife and my son, they're completely measured and very smart. And they don't just make those mistakes, you know? So I'm like, every personality trait is good and bad. And actually, I encourage my parents and kids... Take personality. Once you understand your kids have a different personality, that's going to really help you. Now, this is more high-level coaching. I wouldn't worry about this with a seven-year-old or a first-year wrestler who's in high school. But, you know, we all have different personalities. Some people are not going to take a lot of risk. Some people are. So when you start looking at your strengths and weaknesses and you start highlighting the weaknesses that you can't fix and your wrestling gets smaller so you can steer yourself towards the positions and the techniques from those positions and the modifications of those techniques from those positions to fit your body type. Well, you also have to understand that your personality enters into it too. So all of our personalities are good and bad. We just need, so I try to coach my parents and athletes to have some awareness of the fact that your kids, Donald Trump has a different personality than Bill Gates. They're both successful businessmen, billionaires, 
they're just different. So, you know, you see that in wrestling and, and as um, administratively, uh, bosses, workers, co-workers. There's people with different sales tactics. There's multi-million dollar making saleswomen in real estate who have different style of selling than the other multi-million dollar sales agent. And I think as athletes, we need to understand about ourselves. And as coaches, we need to understand that about our athletes and maybe even our communication with our athletes with different personalities. You know, we got to take these things into place. Now, this is kind of high level coaching, but um, what actually is probably needs to be considered at the outset as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now here, I got a tricky question for you. So I agree with everything you're saying here, but now we've kind of got a bit of a coaching paradox because on one hand, we want to build a structured curriculum that narrows down and focuses on things that are really going to be high value to most people. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. we have to acknowledge that, like you said, everybody is different. And so I would love to know how you balance this, right? How do you deal with this situation where you want to create a system that everyone can use? So ideally your your some of that is going to be cookie cuttering things but on the other hand you're also trying to coach individually and acknowledge that everyone has different strengths and weaknesses and help them build a game plan that emphasizes those strengths how do you balance both of that because those two things seem like they should be diametrically opposed yeah well i tell my athletes this we call it wrinkles on the bed the wrinkles will work their way out so we drill okay so we drill, let's say, from a front headlock at our advanced camps or on you know, phase two and three of our online academy. There's seven ways of scoring from a front headlock. Two of those are counters to counters. We're going to drill all of them because I have a group of 40 guys and girls. I am not your personal coach five hours a day, five days a week, year round for the rest of your life. I am not. At some, so I think encouraging the athlete to say, And I say this, your personality is good, but it can also be bad. You need to understand these about yourself. I have athletes who are very dramatic. They're high energy. I mean, I like that kind of a person. I mean, they'll freaking charge on a mat. And then I have athletes who are kind of laid back a little bit. So I'm like, as a coach, I'm going to teach the group and we're going to from a systematic standpoint, our common positions, techniques, whatever our drill plan, depending upon the room that we're in, we have a drill plan, we rotate through. And it's your job to pick, you need two ways to score from a front headlock. We're going to have seven, but we're going to drill all seven because you might hit one of these techniques on occasion, but that might be the state semis in the overtime. So Mm-hmm. Good thing we drilled it, right? But you might score 98% of the time from a front headlock with these other two. You have to figure that out. And it's not even something you really think about all the time. You just kind of relax and allow it to happen. Now, as far as personality and so forth, I just educate them. We say this, there's no right or wrong way to prepare for a match. There's no. Well, there's some common themes, right? You don't want to fall asleep five minutes before the match, right? No one wants to go on the match scared to death. So I mean, there's some common sense here, but I'm like, you know, Kale Sanderson, who, who we're all big fans of, he, he tells his athletes, be yourself. Be yourself on the mat. Be yourself before the match. Be yourself after the match. Be yourself at practice. So I think just as a coach and a parent, telling your kids that their personality that God gave them is very good. They have to use that and just trust your instincts. So we preach this probably almost as much as anything is just trust your instincts on the wrestling mat and say, I'm going to wrestle instinctively. So, you know, this kind of goes into a different territory, but to answer your questions, 
from a technique standpoint and a practice plan standpoint, I do what I need to do based upon my years of experience. You have to trust me. Secondly, you pick what works best for you without thinking about it too much. Just if you're like, dude, I'm always find myself knee tapping everybody. Ding, 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 ding. Well, there you go. That might be your best way to score. Whatever. Once, once I give you these seven options and I make you drill it 900 times each, over time, you're going to start to fall into what works for you. Just allow this to happen and don't beat yourself up because you didn't place in state yet and your best friend did and he is a wound up pissed off wrestler before he goes on the mat and you don't think that fits you, you might be more like a Kale Sanderson. Dude, it's okay. So quit trying to be, that comes back to not being desperate, right? Because when we're desperate, when we fail, we tend to lash out for others instead of saying, okay, I'm going to course correct here. You don't drive a car down the, the, the road ditch to ditch. You just calmly, you evaluate. So we like to do this. We preach this to our athletes and our parents. You evaluate your wins and losses with intellect, not emotion. That's it. When I intellectually evaluate my wins and losses, you're less likely to lash out and reach and overcorrect and try something different that you saw somebody else try. And you're not going to be the, the, the desperate athlete, right? Mm -hmm. So that's sort of, I kind of let the wrinkles work themselves out once I give them permission just to be themselves and let themselves fall into the rhythm from a technique standpoint that just kind of happens. Yeah, I, th I think the big lesson there is that there's got to be some give and take between the coach and the student. Yes, of course, the yeah. coach is going to come in with their advice. And in a lot of situations, the, the best option for the student, especially if they're new, is to listen. But of course, at some point, you also have to think critically and it also understand where certain strategies just might not be a good fit because nobody knows you better than you. So you do need to listen to your body. You need to listen to your, your own passion because I've certainly had that experience. Sometimes when doing jujitsu, there's certain techniques or strategies that just gr I gravitate naturally towards and things just click together. And everyone's going to have that where there's certain aspects of the sport that they just really resonate with. And it would be a mistake to ignore that. If you're just naturally attuned to a particular style, you should definitely play that style because if, if nothing else, you're going to have a lot more fun playing the art the way that you want to. Well, I agree 100%. And just giving them permission. So I have a lot of phrases. I don't know. One of the phrases I have that I try to put out there is, if you don't have a tremendous system in place and maybe a coach, really more of a teacher slash facilitator, a training environment, if you don't have a training environment with the workout partners and system in place, that's about 90% of your problem. Mm -hmm. But once you have that, it's really only about 10% of the solution. So once I have a tremendous place to train, like I will say our wrestling academy, we had four families the past year and a half sell their house and move here. We've got two more who are moving here this spring to be close to us, right? Which I think is very cool. And so once you're here and we're going to get you built from a groundwork and a framework and you have everything you need in place. Right now we're finishing a nice 3,000 square foot weight room. There's a seven foot wide by 40 foot yard indoor sprint track and we're adding jujitsu, which I know very little about. Played around with it a little bit some. We're going to um, hire coaches. We're getting into jujitsu private team camps where we travel because right now my private team camps where we travel the nation teaching our wrestling system to high school 
teams and youth teams and coaches, and they all get free lifetime access to my online course. So now they can say, we're going to have a system in place. You can figure it out on your own, or you can buy our system and implement it yourself. Or we can come in in, in, in a two and a half day weekend, and we can implement the nuts and bolts of the system for you. And then you can take the bull by the horns after that. So we're getting into some other things with jujitsu also. I think we've already answered that bit, but to go just a little bit further, I think that we give the, the kids permission to kind of work the wrinkles out for themselves a little bit. Oh, I know what I was saying. Cause I said that once you have a great training program and coaches and a system and workout partners, if you don't have that, that's about 90% of your problem because you just don't have a chance. If you want to play lacrosse and you're in New Mexico, I bet the lacrosse coaching and opportunities are better in Connecticut. I can just imagine. And the football opportunities in Florida are probably better than what they have in Maine, right? So if you get to a a jujitsu training program and a gym that has all of your needs are met, if you don't have that, that's about 90% of your problem. You have got to have the training so you have the tools necessary. Now, once you do have that, that's only about 10% of the solution. What I mean by that is once you have all of the tools, it's up to you. So let's say I was going to try to be a chemical engineer and I don't have any chemical engineering training. It doesn't matter what tools I bring to the table. I don't have the tools because I haven't been in the environment. But if I get a four-year degree from Northwestern in chemical engineering and I now have the tools because I lived in this environment and I have the training, once I leave with my degree, now 90% of it is up to me. Having that degree is only about 10% of my success. I'm not going to have guaranteed success the rest of my life, right? So I think from a coaching and an athlete standpoint, we have to completely understand that you have got to have the tools. If you don't have the environment where you can have massive success, that's about 90% of your problem. Once you do, you have put yourself into that environment or you have maybe the, like I said, the online training or something, you bring the environment, you bought it and you're, you're implementing it on your own, whatever it is, then that's, then welcome to the club. Cause why? The top 5% of the athletes in America at your sport all have the training and infrastructure. What then? And that's something I've always been very intrigued with as well. So once you have everything that you need from a training standpoint, there's still so much that that is your burden. You know, Jim Rohn says, you can't hire someone to do your, at the end of the day, you cannot hire someone to do your pushups for you. And I think that we have to understand that, I mean, oh, I'm going to spend another thousand dollars and then I'm going to be a black belt. Dude, it doesn't work that way. Once you're in a gym that provides everything you need, there's still so much that you have to bring to the table. And I think so many people don't bring that to the table. And then what do they do? They quit and join another gym, you know? And, and, and that can be a source of frustration, I think, that we all feel as gym owners. Bam, dude, the environment's here. Look at all these kids we kicked out and moved on to a big-time college wrestling. There's things you got to start bringing to the table, too. And I think the athletes need to realize that. Yeah, yeah. Amazing advice. One last thing I'd love to pick your brain on. One of the interesting things about jujitsu is that, 
not everyone does it as a competitive sport. Jiu-jitsu, like a lot of martial arts, a lot of people get into it for self-defense or for lifestyle purposes or to build confidence. There are a significant number of people in jiu-jitsu who just aren't in it for competition. And I'd say that probably the number of people who train jiu-jitsu with the intent of trying to climb the ladder and be a world-class competitor, it's actually probably quite a minority. So what this means for the coach is that you're going to have a room full of people with massively diverse goals and experiences. You're not likely, unless you're a a specialist competition gym, you're not likely to be in a, a room with, you know, 20 or 30 young people who are all working hard to become the best in the world. You're going to wind up with a lot of moms and dads who do this part time for fun, people who are not necessarily athletic, and they're just in there to kind of, you know, burn off some calories. So you got a lot of diversity in there in terms of your your students base. And I'm wondering, is this a situation that you see in wrestling or is wrestling more competition focused where everyone comes in because they want to climb the podium at the end of the day? Yeah, that's what I like about jujitsu, right? And so we have, once we're done with this new addition, we'll have 25,000 square foot of space. We'll have a third mat room, which is going to be designated for jujitsu. And uh, we're looking, we're adding that. I don't know very little about it. I've just played around with it some uh, over the year and my kids are getting into it. And I'm just developing some good connections and we're going to get into the weekend camps and things and, and hire instructors. So, cause we, we know that's what we do in wrestling. So that's what intrigues me about jujitsu. It's when I was in Oklahoma state, the rodeo circuit. I mean, these people are freaking crazy, dude. They literally travel every week and all across America and do the rodeo. They sleep in freaking horse trailers and stuff. It's crazy. And I noticed that in wrestling, we had that too. But then it's done because wrestling is all competition. After college, you're either done or after high school, you're either done or you go into college wrestling. After that, you're either done or maybe you tried the international route for six or eight years. Then you're done. Where jiu-jitsu, some people don't even start until they're 30 years old, Yeah. right? And I want to learn. I'm like, and I've got to know some jujitsu athletes like Dakota Zimmerman. She trains at a gym close to us. She actually fought on Bellator, but now she doesn't even do the fighting anymore. Montana De La Rosa, her daughter came to our camp last month. She's an MMA fighter, obviously. I Mesger, one of the first MMA guys. His son came to my camps many times. I've got to know some. Matt Linlin, he was an MMA star. He just got his black belt from which Gracie lives in New York City. Uh, Henzo, there's a, I think there's more yeah, than yeah, him, but he's the yeah. one that most H- people know. Yeah. Henzo, he just got his black belt from Henzo about two months ago. And he's the, the head coach of the Greco team. I flew out to Colorado last month to get Greco Roman training from Matt, who was my brother's teammate. So I, I've watched him, uh, Don Fry, the amazing Don Fry. He was my best friend in college for two years until he graduated. So I have a connection to a lot of OG MMA guys in jiu-jitsu. And now I've gotten to, I was so buried with work and just a lot of work over the past 20 years. And now I'm like a little less busy. And now I'm kind of like getting into jiu-jitsu and learning. These people, even though they start later, they're kind of like the rodeo circuit people. They're freaking obsessed. And like we have some jiu-jitsu people who come to our gym to learn. And I'm like, come on in. I love and, and they're learning wrestling. And I'm wrestling like these little 30-year-old women and these big, strong jiu-jitsu guys who could kick my ass at any second. But they're like mesmerized. Like I'm like, dude, it's a freaking snap down. It's not that like, no, what did you do? 
just do. I'm like, uh, you would be down. amazed at how little oh, wrestling awesome. jujitsu people know. And it's funny because wrestling is a part of jujitsu. I mean, a lot of what you would do in wrestling is totally applicable to jujitsu. In fact, one of the, the worst nightmares for a jujitsu person is you get a really high level wrestler. You bring them in, you teach them some submission defense. They're going to make your life miserable. <laughs> wrestling is absolutely a part of jujitsu. But the funny thing is most jujitsu people are other than how to do a very basic single or a very basic double. Most jujitsu people are pretty weak on the wrestling side. So yeah, it's like black magic when you show it to some of them. Yeah, but I could be wrong, but it seems to me like if I was as a wrestling guy instructing anybody in jiu-jitsu, I would say, forget jiu-jitsu, come to wrestling practice, let's just do wrestling. Let's not try to have like modified wrestling for the sport of jiu-jitsu, let's just wrestle. And then that way you can figure, like I saw, wrinkles on the bed. You can trust your instincts, let the wrinkles work them way out. You can implement how this works for your jiu-jitsu and based upon your style and so forth, but... It seems to me like if I was in jiu-jitsu and I wanted to learn wrestling, I don't know. It seems like just just freaking have wrestling-only class and learn the sport that way. It seems to be the best route to take. And I think that it maybe wouldn't be so hard. I think they come in there wearing their jiu-jitsu mindset instead of just saying, no, I'm learning a new sport. It's like going out to the soccer field and kicking a soccer ball. You're not, you're not jujitsu anymore. This is freaking soccer. I think if they took that approach with wrestling, it wouldn't be so black magic to them. You know, that's just kind of my instinct on that. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And the same could be said of judo as well in the context of jujitsu. The reason this happens, I think, is because of the way that the primary point scoring system works in jujitsu. If you take someone down in jujitsu, at least under the IBJJF rules, you get two points. But if I pull guard, if I sit on my butt and I'm able to sweep you and wind up on top position, I also get two points. So I'm going to get two points either way. So what that means from a competitive standpoint is if I'm not good at wrestling or judo, I can avoid that. I can just sit down on the ground and force you to do jujitsu. So that's a totally valid competition strategy. But what winds up happening is you wind up with grapplers who can succeed at a very, very high level, but they have close to no takedown skills or wrestling whatsoever because the rule set does not require it. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because judo and wrestling are actually very closely related to jujitsu. And a lot of what you would do in either judo or wrestling, those techniques can be taken and reappropriated for jujitsu. There, there's a lot of overlap, but because of the way the point system works, people aren't incentivized to play that game. So what you see is you'll see people go out and they'll give a token effort towards wrestling and then they'll get tired or frustrated and they'll just sit down and force the jujitsu game to happen. And because of that, because they're going back to their comfort zone, their growth gets stunted yeah. and they never actually go outside of the comfort zone. So I agree with you. The best thing to do if you want to learn stand up and you're a jujitsu person is to take judo and wrestling classes where sitting down on your ass is not an option because then you won't be tempted to do that and then you can focus on building up new skill sets that you didn't have before yeah well like i said my son and son-in-law and, and my son's girlfriend and, and, and my daughter they have taken some jujitsu classes with rodrigo vague and he's a good dude. His, his son was in my room for about 10 or 12 years. Anyway, and as we get jujitsu in my gym, I try to get some affiliation with them. It just didn't work out for various reasons. But so I've learned a little bit of jujitsu because we had it last, last, you know, on some Sundays at my gym and Dakota Zimmerman kind of taught me a little bit. And I was like, and they're like, no, you should do jujitsu like a wrestler and just get the takedown and pass guard. And I'm like, 
No, dude, I'm my wrestling career's done, bro. I'm 52. I want to learn jujitsu. I want to freaking they call it being a butt sitter. I don't know if that's uh, you. I'm like, I want to do that. I don't want it because I don't <laughs> care about competing. I'm not going to enter tournaments. I I want to learn like jujitsu, like a non wrestler. Now, if I was competing, I'm like, hey, show me the easiest way to start winning. I'm going to bring my 40 years of wrestling experience to the table. Let's do that. But, so for me as an older guy who could give a crap less about competing in, in this arena, I want to learn jujitsu kind of just like from a non-wrestling standpoint too. So I'm anxious to get Our gym's going to be complete in about three months. So I'm anxious to kind of learn as well because like you said, a lot of people – in jujitsu aren't competing they're just they want to learn the sport especially with mma and in the joe rogan talking about jujitsu all the time it's a super cool sport and i really like the um i got two former wrestlers of mine daisy fresh right you've heard of daisy fresh oh There's, yes we've had them on the podcast before too yeah yeah so michael pixley trained with me since he was 10 and tad craven since he was like 10. So they're both, they both trained on there. And then Dakota Zimmerman, who helps us with our wrestling classes and stuff. I've helped her with her jujitsu. She travels down there and trains with those guys. But so I'm in touch with Tad Cravens quite a bit. And I'm like completely intrigued by, I mean, it's like an old laundromat and these people are freaking psychotic. Now they're competitive, but it's kind of like I talked about earlier, the rodeo circuit, these people in Oklahoma, I mean, their whole life revolves around the rodeo. But dude, I was that way in wrestling. I got made fun of in, in middle school and high school. And then I get to college at Oklahoma State and I was like, it was a brotherhood. I'm like, hey, we're all freaking psychos. I mean, people are like, why do you care so much about a sport? And I'm like, it's not the sport. I just really want to be great at something. And this is just what found me, you know? So yeah. it was funny because I got made fun of for being like psychotically focused on success in the sport of wrestling as a kid and in middle school and high school. Then you get into college and you're like, dude, we're all like that, you know? And I'm assuming that you might get some athletes in jujitsu who, who start off maybe recreationally, they get bit by the bug and they're like freaking they're missing work. This girl, she she just moved closer to Dakota. She quit her job. She took a different job in in St. Louis at WashU. And what is Andrea? She is like thirty seven. And I'm like, I love that. You know, the people who are obsessed in the sport of wrestling, where they're kind of like considered weirdos because they're just so obsessed with with a sport. <laughs> they're young. They're 12. They're 14. They're 21 years old and in college where you see people who get bit by the jujitsu bug. They didn't even start it until they were, you know, 20, 30 years old. So I think that I've always kind of been drawn to the obsessed amateur athlete, I guess you could say. You know, like my niece, she's a level 10 all-around state champion gymnast in Missouri. And she is in, I guess she's a sophomore. I mean, dude, I was like that as a kid too. So I like that. I like that those those are kind of like my people, you could say. The jujitsu people who I've met over the past three or four years who are like that, some of them didn't even start jujitsu until they were already had a family. And it's kind of like another opportunity because, and that's why I like the fact that it, you don't have to be someone who wants to compete. <laughs> you just want to learn the sport for all of the awesome things that you can gain from it. But yeah, you can go off and be a mom or a dad, sell insurance, do your construction job, be a dentist, whatever you are. 
bit. These people are obsessed over the sport. It, it kind of pulls you in, I think. And I don't know. I, I'm ranting here. I'm getting off track. But I, I, I like your like community. You, you people are kind of like those rodeo people I met in Oklahoma, or like the wrestling people I hung out with as a kid and in college. It's like bit by the bug. You, you can't, you can't shake it. Yeah, that that is definitely one of the attributes of jujitsu, and it's kind of something that we often make fun of in the community, which is when so when a new person discovers jujitsu and they're a white belt or a blue belt, they become incredibly obnoxious to their friends and family because they won't talk about anything except jujitsu. It just kind of becomes this all encompassing hobby that just takes over your entire life. That that is very much a thing. Yeah. yeah, you bring up a good point, and one of the things I like about jujitsu as a sport is that. It doesn't really have an end date where once you get into your later years, you basically have to stop. Jiu-Jitsu has very good paths for people to continue training and practicing even as they get older. That's actually one of the cool things about jujitsu. I mean, I'm not going to say that it's the absolute best fighting system. I mean, a wrestler in their prime, like I said earlier, is a lot scarier. <laughs> a wrestler with submission defense can be a very, very scary thing, even to trained grapplers who do jujitsu a lot. But that said, one of the cool things about jujitsu is even if you're 40, 50, even 60 or beyond, you can actually be still pretty effective at jiu-jitsu. I mean, I train with a lot of older guys. My my accountant is a jiu-jitsu black belt. He's an older oh, guy cool. and he'll, you know, I mean, he's tough as nails. I know have a friend who's a mechanic who's a black belt, also an older guy and also tough as nails. And I train with this guy who's like this little 60-year-old dude. I think he's a second degree black belt right now. And I mean, he's not athletic. He doesn't move particularly fast, but his technique is so refined that he can kind of be slow and steady and protect himself and then gradually start to wear you down and, and pin you. And that's one of the cool things I like about jujitsu is that you can continue to practice it and be effective even in your later years. So it's a good off ramp for other people who are engaged in more athletic competitive sports, because in jujitsu, you can still participate in that ecosystem even well into your senior years. Yeah, no, I totally get it. And I've, I've seen that. And so, you know, I'm interested in learning myself. Because, you know, my life's getting a little bit easier now that I have hired some help and my son and son-in-law are involved. And, um, you know, there was a time when I really just, I just worked uh, quite a bit for about 15, 16 years. But now I feel like I'm retired. I work like 35 hours a week. I coach two nights a week only. And I'm like, dude, I want to do something. I want to learn. So once we get it going at my gym, I'm going to learn and uh, I'll probably be one of those kind of geeks like you talked about. And uh <laughs> You know, my my daughter, she's like in real good shape. Like she's a fitness freak. So is my wife. They, and you know, I mean, they haven't like drank a soda like in twelve years. I mean, they're like psycho fitness <laughs> freaks, uh, which is which is a good thing. And my my son in law wrestled in college. My son could have. He just decided not to wrestle in college. But they're like, Dad, I got so freaking tired. About threw up. And I'm like, in jujitsu, I mean, you don't get tired doing that, do you? And they're like oh, it's a different kind of fatigue, you know? And, and it's because when I watch the videos and stuff, I mean, just the pressure and, and it's a different kind of fatigue. But my daughter's like, I actually about threw up and I was so embarrassed because I consider myself to be someone in good shape. So I think <laughs> that, you know, definitely from people who don't want to go to a gym and walk on a treadmill for 45 minutes, I mean, jujitsu, this is going to be kind of where we kind of approach trying to build a jujitsu gym at our existing wrestling gym once we get this facility finished being built, is just 
pushing that side of it because we have a weight room over there, sprint track, all the functional training equipment we just ordered. So a lot of people do want to learn something new, but they don't want to do aerobics. They don't want to go spin class and sit on an iron bike and listen to someone yell at them. They want to learn something. (laughs) And I'm thinking, that is exactly why I got into jujitsu. Actually, is because and, and I'm not doing yeah. you can do that with wrestling. I really because not that wrestling's. I think it's probably more user friendly for the 35 year old mother of two or the 40 year old dad who probably could lose 25 pounds who hasn't exercised in 15 years. I mean, because there is such a control aspect to jujitsu, and uh, there is with mat wrestling too. But I think it's really something that. You know, not everyone's going to go in a boxing ring and box, you know, to, to get in shape when they're in their 40s. I just think jujitsu is, it is, like you said, a good off-ramp. And uh, I don't know, I, I'm kind of intrigued by by all these people. A lot of my wrestling dads and, and moms, mostly dads, they're like, they send me pictures and stuff. And I mean, it's awesome, you know, and they shut the hell up now. It's like, dude, you're not barking at your kid anymore. You're in your fifth month of jujitsu. You're probably getting your ass kicked. And now you're you're on the side of the mat and you're like, dude, son, I understand how it is, you know? <laughs> well, that's the thing I, I like about jujitsu is that, I mean, the, the whole sales pitch for jujitsu when it burst onto the scene was that it's a fighting system for non-athletes. And Hoist Gracie's whole UFC run was basically an advertisement for that, that you can be a non-athlete and still be surprisingly effective in a combat situation. And that's the attraction behind jujitsu. So for that reason, it is a great onboarding activity if you want to get someone into fitness and into competitive sports where they've never been interested in that before. For me, I've, I've never been into sports prior to jujitsu, but I just fell in love with this thing for reasons unrelated to competitive performance. Uh, Like you said earlier, for me, it's not that I got into this because I wanted to be a world champion or even that I wanted to compete, but it's just a practice that I love. It gets me in shape. It gives me confidence. And unlike, you know, riding the stationary bike, it gives me a useful skill. So it makes me feel like I'm actually investing my time in something useful. So that's one of the reasons why I, I love it. And I think that Jiu-jitsu and wrestling go very much hand in hand. I would say wrestling, like you said, is much more competitive focused. And I mean, I'll be honest, you're going to find a much higher caliber of athlete in wrestling than you will in jiu-jitsu, which is sort of by design. But I believe that those two sports do harmonize very, very well together. So yeah, I think it's awesome that you're expanding into that. Yeah, yeah. That's been what I have found as well. Awesome. Well, let me ask here then, Nick, if people want to check out your stuff, I know that, you know, you've talked a lot about your new upgrades to your academy. And of course, I know you've also got your online academy. Why didn't you give them a plug? Just tell people what they can expect there and how they would go about finding them. Yeah, well, it's at perlerwrestling.com. And also just on a on different note, it, just the kind of the weight loss side of wrestling and jujitsu, we have a playlist. There's about 970 videos we have on our YouTube channel. So the playlist on how to make weight for competition, that could be very useful. Also, like this kind of sports psychology side of wrestling 
is probably the same as jujitsu. So we have playlists there that, that are very popular. And I have a lot of advice. I like giving advice videos. So we have a bunch of those on our Instagram, just Perla Wrestling, and it all pops up. Awesome. So, you know, just for your competitive athletes, I think our YouTube channel and our Facebook and Instagram, there's some great videos there on the mental side of these competitive individual sports, as well as the weight loss, because everyone knows the wrestler is the expert at making weight and being strong and powerful when they do it. And I've given away a lot of secrets there. So that would be a good resource. But yeah, so we basically have our our wrestling camps, wrestling academy, our online academy, which you can learn wrestling in four parts like we've already discussed. But you can find us online at perlerwrestling.com. We are getting into private team camps where we bring our wrestling system to jujitsu gyms who just want to learn our wrestling system. Now, this would be kind of boiled down nuts and bolts, kind of like our, our academy core skills program. So if anybody had interest in that, you can you can find us at perlerwrestling.com and contact us from there. But we kind of do it all. And, you know, over time, we're going to have a jiu-jitsu going at our gym and, and, and hire some coaches to come and do it. And I'm going to learn something new. And, and we're kind of excited about it all. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming by. And of course, to anyone out there who wants to get in touch with me, best way to do that is go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's the main website. If you go there, you're going to find hundreds of hours of uh, free educational jujitsu audio content. Plus, we've got a whole database of mental models that are really helpful for the sport of jujitsu. There are over 100 of them at this point now, so I do recommend you check it out. If you want to shoot me a message, that's also the best place to do it. There's a, an easy contact form. And of course, if you want to dig deeper into all of this stuff, we have much more in-depth courseware on BJJ Mental Models Premium. In addition to that, you'll also get access to our Discord community, and I will provide direct coaching to you. You can send me your video feedback and I'll break it down and give you some advice. So again, please do check that out if you haven't already. There's a free trial, so there's no risk to you to doing so. No cost. Premium.bjjmentalmodels.com really helps support the show and I greatly appreciate everyone checking that out. If for nothing else, to just give it a free trial and give me some feedback on it. Well, Nick, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate having you by. Really awesome insights into how to structure a curriculum and into the sport of wrestling. And I hope that if nothing else, this has inspired the uh, jiu-jitsu people out here to develop a stronger wrestling game and study this uh, sister art of jiu-jitsu because I think it'll benefit everybody who does. Yep, I would agree. And I appreciate you guys having me and I wish all of your listeners great success in their jiu-jitsu and maybe even wrestling journey. So good luck to everyone. Yeah, Me as well. So thanks again also to everyone out there for listening and we'll talk to you folks next week. <laughs>